0: I read a blog post this week that said pastors don't get cute at Christmas, meaning uh, Christmas comes around so often, and you have to have like a Christmas Eve service every single year. It's really easy to say, I'm tired of the old stuff. Let's say something different. And this was just a loving pastor saying, don't do that. Your people actually need Christmas. (laughs) We need the re-anchoring of the real story And uh, so one of the benefits of a Christmas Eve service is I don't know a lot of people here. And so I have a real freedom to make an invitation to say, look, maybe you've been just kind of coasting in your spiritual life for some time now. Let Christmas be this marker every year, and this be the year that you simply come home to Jesus. This is the time. What a better time than tonight. If you'll open your insert, or actually, we don't have an insert today. We just the last page of your worship booklet. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 2. Another reason we don't want to get cute at Christmas time is 1 Peter says this thing about Jesus taking on flesh and coming for people, it's something into which angels long to look. Angels who are really smart and have been around a lot longer than we have. They just can't believe it. They look at this and they're stunned by the reality that God himself would become a man. Tonight we just want to consider for a few minutes of why that is. Why it's nece- why tonight's necessary. Why Christmas is necessary. Follow along if you would from Hebrews 2. This might not be a place you've had a Christmas Eve ser- sermon before, but here we go. had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have been enjoying a new baby in our family the last few weeks, this time through, his grandparents, uh, which is good because we pretty much only have the energy for that. Watching several young parents, uh, we loved being parents of younger children. We like being grandparents now. So our grandchild Josiah has uh, basically now a, a three-week-old lump of flesh, requiring constant twenty-four-seven care from his mom and dad, and occasionally grandma and grandpa. He's helpless. He's dependent. He is vulnerable. Just like, well, everybody here once was. We all started out that way. Sharing in a real human condition. Even right now, the most powerful and influential people of the world didn't start out that way. They started out as a lump of flesh requiring 24-7 care from a mom or a dad, and they were helpless and vulnerable and needy sharing a human condition. Uh, that's that's we all share this true and sort of honest human reality. It is the cornerstone of the Christian faith that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the creator of all things, took on human flesh, stepped into this world, and became authentically, really, and truly human subject to the same human frailty and human reality that you are and that I am, and just like any baby is, and every other person who was ever born, all eight billion people alive today and the billions have gone before experiencing true humanity just like Jesus did. That's why we celebrate Christmas. But at the street level, I think, I find that most followers of Jesus don't actually believe this, like that Jesus was really and truly a human, I don't know if it's because, like, I don't know, have you seen the pictures, like the old paintings from the Middle Ages where Jesus has a halo? I guess it's to signify which one of the painting is Jesus, but he kind of glows, and he's kind of, like, brighter than everybody else. Uh, Whereas, like, growing up, watching Batman and Superman cartoons, or many of you didn't watch, I watched cartoons, but uh, that's a long time ago, there's things called cartoons. Now, there's just movies um, where it was Bruce Wayne, but really it was Batman. Whereas Clark Kent, but like he had Superman underneath. He was always just like, not really Clark Kent. He was actually Superman. And so we have this vision that Jesus was, you know, human-ish. But he kind of really kind of floated maybe six inches off the ground, or really maybe not. But when things got really hard, when he really had to love his enemies, how did he do that? Well, we say we say this around here jokingly. He just played the God card, right? He's like, well, I'm God. I can do what you can't do. That's not what he did. He was authentically, really, and truly human, a spirit-empowered human man. And so if you bring that down to the, you know, the word incarnation just means in flesh, when Jesus takes on flesh. You think of Jesus in uh, the manger, the, the scene we just read about. What do we think about Jesus? See, really, did Joseph say to Mary at one point, hey, honey, do you think he leaked through his diaper? Probably so. But my conception is a lot of people, we, we just think about Jesus as a baby, as sort of the baby in the cartoon Boss Baby. Ever seen Boss Baby? It's a very eerie movie, but it's essentially the baby in the family is a spy, right? Right? And when he looks like a baby, and he acts like a baby when people are around watching. But when nobody's around, he pulls out the cell phone, and he is, a, you know, a secret agent, and he ha- talks with the adult voice of Alec Baldwin. It's, it's weird. It's eerie, but he's, he's, uh, he's only a ba- he only pretends to be a baby, but underneath, he's not really a baby. So maybe Jesus is just sort of do- going through the motions when he's a baby, just waiting so he could come to do what he came to do. That is not actually the picture in the Scripture of what Jesus is. He, was, he became truly, really, authentically human, as human as you are, and as human as I am. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation. In the, so this, this morning, nope, this evening, I just want to spend a couple minutes uh, from this passage looking at a couple of reasons why this is necessary. Christmas is about Jesus becoming an authentic, real, and true human. Not partial, not human-like, not, I don't know how, I, I'm belaboring the point, but he wasn't human in his body and mind, but not in his soul. He was human, human, human. Fully human. Two reasons this, pa- uh, this passage captures are so, one, that he can be a fully, authentic, true champion of his people. And so he could be a true, authentic, real champion. High priest for you and me. Champion and high priest. So let's let's see these briefly here. Jesus becomes an authentic, real, true, true human that he may be our authentic, real, true champion. Again, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. What's that? Flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. That, okay, this is the why, It's such an easy word in English, but it's so important here in this passage. So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So you might say, why are you talking about destroying the power of the devil? It's Christmas time because the Bible says he came so that he could do this. We can't separate what he came to do from why he came to do it. He had, this is, he had to become human in order to do this. This is why he came. Uh, he becomes, in taking on flesh, Jesus becomes an authentic champion who can defeat sin and the devil on the same battleground where sin and Satan had the first apparent victory. What is that battleground? Well, that battleground is sitting in your chair. Humanity. Us. By taking on flesh, Jesus becomes qualified to do what Adam was supposed to do but didn't. What you and I are created to do originally but cannot, namely to be the true image of God walking this earth, being a life-giving, dominion-taking presence in active, humble dependence on God. That's what Adam was tasked to do, but he didn't. That's what we're created to do, but cannot because of sin. And Jesus, because he's truly human, becomes qualified to do this. It is as this true human qualified to do this, that he takes the penalty then of human sin, that he bears the weight of the, of the deadly effects of sin and drinks it down. On the front of your worship booklet, I put a couple quotes. The first one is from an old theologian, many of you have never read, um, perhaps from the 1500s. John Calvin writes, since neither as God alone could he feel death, nor as man alone could he overcome it, he coupled human nature with the divine, that to atone for sin he might submit the weakness of the one to death, and that wrestling with death by the power of the other nature, he might win victory for us. But we should especially espouse what I have just explained our common nature with Christ is the pledge of our fellowship with the Son of God, and clothed with our flesh, he vanquished death and sin together that the victory and triumph might be ours. What's, I should just say it this way. Calvin's really smart and really dense, but here's what he's saying. Humanity could taste death, but not defeat sin. God could defeat sin, but not taste death. What is the solution? Incarnation. God and man, one person. Truly God, truly man. It makes Jesus uniquely qualified to do what he came to do. Not just to be a cute inspiration for Christmas cards, but to to defeat the power of the devil for you and for me. If he were going to deliver angels, he would have become an angel. He didn't come to deliver angels. He came to to deliver the pinnacle of his creation, those who bear his image, people like me and people like you. So there's a couple application pathways here. In Jesus, we have been, if you're in Christ by faith, you have been delivered from the slavery that leads to fear. So let's not put ourselves back there. Jesus has done something in history by taking on flesh and then going to the cross. If you're connected to him by faith, he's done something in the history of your life. If we consider the whole book of Hebrews together, what is this fear of death? It's not just fear of dying, though that is part of it too. It's all those hints of death and destruction that we live with in our life. It could be the fear of uh, condemnation, fear of judgment. It could be just when we are frail. When we're frail, when we're, we feel like our world is falling apart, we sense frailty in our own self, we, we intuitively, like, seek to be filled with things. We, we seek things that tell us we're okay. We're, we're, we're righteous in some way. We're okay. If I can get this thing, I'll be secure. We, when we sense the, our world shaking and that hint of death and destruction, we kind of freak out and look for things to hold on to. All this is telling us is, well, we can certainly do that. But we don't have to because in Jesus, we've actually been delivered from the fear of death that leads to slavery. This is really actually just a typical Jewish way of arguing. Um, if, If you've been delivered from death, how much more than everything else? I mean, that's the biggest threat, how much more than everything else? Now, you may say, yeah, but I don't feel that. In fact, I constantly feel fear in my life. I constantly feel this power of sin in my life. What do I do? This was the thing angels long to look into. They can't get enough of Jesus taking on flesh for humanity. The invitation is, let's just keep looking there and seeing what happens. Keep looking into Jesus and his love for his people. Keep looking there. Because he is your champion. He came in the flesh to be qualified to be your champion to defeat the devil for us and defeat sin for us so we don't have to because we cannot. Secondly, Jesus becomes an authentic, real, true human that he may be our authentic, real, true high priest. What does that mean? Let me unpack that in a second. But first, verse 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, Okay, so let me translate it. Therefore, Christmas had to happen so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Stop there for a second. Uh, he was made like his brothers in every respect. The only difference between me and Jesus, <laughs> that's a dangerous thing to begin a sentence with. The only difference between me and Jesus, essentially... Is sin. <laughs> Same for you. Fully human sinner, Christ, fully human non-sinner. A couple of big words and ideas here. First, the high priest. It was the, a Jewish official whose job it was to present the people to God and God to the people. Even though he himself was a flawed person, he he, he was qualified to be a high priest because he was one of them. This qualifies Jesus to be the high priest, the ultimate one who represents the people to God and God to the people. He's just the perfect high priest. Propitiation, that word, like that's a $64,000 word. Nobody should learn the word propitiation on Christmas Eve, but here you go. Propitiation is a word that means putting away divine wrath. Putting away divine wrath. So let's just talk about divine wrath for a second. Because who doesn't want to do that? Divine wrath. Sin is a destructive cancer on God's good creation. It's destroying it. Because God loves his creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Purpose together to remove the cancer. The removal of the cancer of sin from creation is called divine wrath. Now we get a little skittish when we talk about wrath, partly because TV preachers are stupid, and you know it's like it. Um, not all TV preachers are stupid, but you know the the crazy people that the news covers. It's just. You know, or maybe you grew up in sort of a fire and brimstone. We don't like the idea of wrath because we think about human wrath. And that we often think about like um, um, a person who's out of control or unpredictable or uh, unnecessarily harsh or brutal or unfair or unjust. That is human wrath. That is not this. That is not this. Divine wrath is God's settled opposition against the cancer, the destructive cancer of sin in his world. That's his settled opposition against it and his intention to remove it and destroy it. That is divine wrath. And he does that by taking it on himself. Now, because of the Trinity, we can say, in some ways, Jesus is, Jesus is God propitiating himself. It's his wrath, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son t- steps in and takes that. Right. Why? He's removing the destruction of sin from this world. For all those who say, I want what you are doing. I want to be part of that. I want to be under that, uh, that uh, protective covering of Jesus. Propitiation. That's why we have a baby in a manger, so we have propitiation at the end of the story. So if you are connected to Jesus by faith, hear this. There is no final consequence to you for your sin. It has already been taken care of. It's amazing. You are free. We are freer than we know if we're in Jesus. The only thing left for us is mercy. Mercy. Forgiveness. I know it's hard to hold on to, it's hard to receive, but it's the only thing left for us. So we should get used to it. Now, there is a, there's a weighty warning here, however. If if we refuse to find ourselves in Jesus, who propitiates sin for us, there will be another real, authentic, true human Called to make propitiation for our sin. Us. And that is not a job we can bear. But we don't have to. Because this is why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus came to do that for all who run to him, for all who trust to him, who all who fly to him by faith. In the early church, there were two main symbols of Christianity. Uh, one was not the cross. The cross didn't become a symbol of Christianity until like the fifth or sixth century. Um, the two symbols of Christianity anybody know what one of them was? Fish, somebody said fish, right? The ichthys. okay. Everybody, good, good work. The fish, anybody know what the second was? Who's not in my family we talked about today? The anchor. The anchor. Now, as part as like you need to be able to draw in the sand to show that you were Christian, It's kind of code. But this was this was like we have crosses today, which does signify Christianity. They had a fish and they had an anchor. The anchor sometimes was carved on coffins of Christians. Where do they get that from? They get it from Hebrews 6, 19 and twenty, which I didn't put in there. But just hear this: uh, it's we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, I'm not going to explain very much of that at all, only to see that the anchor, which was so important for these early Christians, was connected to Jesus being a high priest, in part because what I just said, propitiation. In Jesus, we're completely, completely free. He's taking care of our sin. He's covered it. He's removed it out of the way, removed our guilt, covered our shame. We have but to open our hands and receive what he's done. That was a sole anchor for them when their world was falling apart. And then the second piece was this. It's verse 18. The other part of Jesus being a high priest, this was just, just struck me this week. For, be, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus identifies with us in our temptation. I, for years, I've had... Some back issues. If you've had back issues, you know it's really painful. And sometimes you can't do anything. Like you're afraid to sneeze because you just don't know what's going to happen, right? Um, You can't tie your shoes very well. So there are two types of people. People who have had back issues and people who have not had back issues. And people who have not had back issues are often very kind and compassionate and say, oh, I'm sure that really hurts, until they have back issues. And then they say to you something like, oh, my. Now, so... Providentially in God's providence, this last time I went through a, a back thing, I had two good friends who actually at the same time had an issue with their back. And both of them said to me, Roger, I thought I knew, but now I know. They identified in a real different way. It was theoretical at first. Jesus' identification with our temptation is not theoretical. It is real. Real. In fact, there's a, a way that Jesus knows temptation even more than you do and I do. Let me just read this. i um, almost done here. A few sentences from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Okay, got to rewind. This is the 1940s, a Brit, okay, so give him some slack. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation is. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ and Jesus, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Here's what this means. The last temptation you had, where you finally gave in, Jesus was at the same point of temptation and withstood. Not so that you can feel bad about yourself, but so that you can run to him for help, and he knows what it is to bear up under that temptation right at the point where you fell and he didn't fall. He knows how to help us right there. How does he he qualify to do that? He's a real human. He didn't play the God card. He's been there and farther. This is, just so, this is such a beautiful thing to me about the incarnation this year as I'm reflecting on it. Think, holding my grandson in my arms thinking, Jesus was like this so that we can read a verse like 18. He himself has suffered when tempted because that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Would we not run to the one when we struggle with anger, the one who knows what it is to be tempted with anger and to turn it away? When we struggle with fear, wouldn't would there not be freedom to go to one who knows what it is to be tempted to fear and chooses courage? Jesus knows that it can help. He knows what it is to face sexual temptation and to turn it away. He knows what it is to, to face the depths of despair, to, to push through it. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted to the extent that we've been and farther, therefore we can run to him. He's available to us. But he also knows the the brokenness of this world. He knows sorrow. Are you sorrowing right now? You have a helper. We have a helper who knows the depths of sorrow. He knows what it is to be abandoned. He knows what it is to be mocked. He knows what it is to be isolated and left and alone. He knows the pressure and the temptation of the spotlight. He knows the pressure of people around him saying, we want you to be in the spotlight. He knows. He knows the allure of being the center of attention. And the only difference between Jesus as we see him in the Gospels or in the manger is that now he is unlimited. Now we can run to him right now this night, right now. The last quote on the inside of your bulletin by Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Dane writes, the risen Lord who is alive and well in heaven today is not somehow less approachable and less compassionate than he was when he walked the earth. You know, I don't know if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John said, and say, I would love to have known Jesus. It would be great to hang out with him. He seems so compassionate and so kind and so responsive. And he just knows what people need, and he says the right things. It's so beautiful. I wish I could know him. And the incarnation means we can. We can. Now he makes himself available to us by his spirit through word, through prayer, through worship, even in community, and would simply say, come to me. The purpose of my coming was to make myself available to help you. If you will. It's a feature, not a bug, of the whole program. Jesus took on human flesh and became incredibly vulnerable, set aside for a time his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, entrusted them to his Father to become really human, really to know what it is to be human so you and I can run to him with full assurance that in him there is nothing left but mercy and forgiveness and help. If it's been a while, come to Jesus. Let me pray, and we will finish up our service. Lord Jesus, we thank you for feeling our frailty, for not becoming kind of human-like, but coming all the way down, (laughs) so that you may lift us all the way up. Let us be free from the temptation to pretend that we don't need that that we don't need your rescue and redemption, for we do. Thank you for Christmas where we celebrate the fact that you did this so that you would become our champion and our high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to end our service now as we typically do. It's going to be a little more difficult because we got a lot more people in here than we did last year. So we'll see how this works.